Welcome to the Mason Jar. I am here today with Jody Mockaby. I was able to meet Jody recently at a Wild and Free conference in Franklin, Tennessee. Jody is a photographer, a writer, a speaker, and a wife and homeschooling mother of five who takes joy in experiencing many adventures with her family. Um, she has beautiful um, online presence. You can find Jody at, on Instagram at, at Jody Mockaby, and um, that's Jody with an I. And you can also find her at jodymockaby.com. And we'll talk a little bit later about some of the things she offers on her website. She has some really beautiful stuff. And um, she has a very interesting story about how she became a homeschooler, how she heard about some of these things. So I thought it would be fun to talk to her today. So welcome to the Mason Jar, Jody. Thank you, Cindy. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So um, I was going to ask you about that first off. So you have five children. What are the ages of your children? Right now they're 12, 10, 8, and then I have six-year-old twin boys. So I have four boys and one girl, and the girl is right in the middle of those guys. Okay, fun, fun. So 12 is your oldest. Yes. So how old was your 12-year-old when you decided to homeschool? He was in second grade, and my second son was in kindergarten. And then the other two were just, you know, preschoolers, but they didn't go to preschool. And um, we actually loved the school that they were going to. It was a K-12 through school that I had gone through in my hometown and we had moved back here and all of our friends' children's were, children were going there and it was a really sweet school. Um, but the Lord just called us to something different and we started kind of that process and it ended up being really fruitful. So we're still at it. <laughs> okay. So you just, you, you had a good situation going, but you still felt like you were called to homeschool and you started homeschooling. Did you ever feel like or in the, or before you homeschooled that you would never be that person, that homeschooling mom? <laughs> Yeah, I was conflicted a little bit because we, you know, have kind of a quote unquote crunchy lifestyle. And so I always felt weird being crunchy, but not homeschooling because I felt like they went hand in hand. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. And I just, I really enjoyed my time at home. I loved having a clean home and I liked having my own time. And so that was a wake up call to all of a sudden lose both of those. Um, but it has just been, again, so fruitful. And I know, know the Lord used that to just help grow me as well. So, um, and it, it has been the best for my children. Absolutely. So, yeah, it is hard. It is hard when you think of how much time we spend. Uh, we do, we do sacrifice uh, some of our, our alone time or our private time or our creative time that we would, would, would put into ourselves then we put it into our family instead I think that's you know so much fruit though um, now did you ever, how did, did did you know about Charlotte Mason when you first started homeschooling not really I had so I had a small Instagram presence before and just our lifestyle apparently evoked kind of a Charlotte Mason lifestyle yet I had not heard of her prior to us choosing to homeschool and I originally started homeschooling because of just the mentor that I was under, under a very classical um, philosophy. And I then that's when I kind of dove in. It didn't feel right to us. It was a little bit too regimented and um, a lot of fill in the blanks. And it felt like school, what I had just pulled my kids from. 
And there was not a lot of sparks or joy going on when we would kind of go through some of the workbooks. And um, that's when I started just diving into research on different methods and philosophies to try to understand how we could work best in our home and, and have the most peaceful and joy-filled environment. And that's when I discovered Charlotte Mason. Yeah, so you um, so you have some beautiful materials. You sent me your, um, I have your starter's manual for, for um, I guess, yeah, getting started manual that you have. And you have other um, uh, manuals also that you sell. But in looking at your homeschool, it does look very, very much like you have, um, have just taken um, what Charlotte Mason tells us in principle and just applied it in your own way in your own homeschool. And I, I am very, I really like that. I like how you've made it your own and, and haven't just followed, um, you know, lockstep in with what somebody else is telling you to do. Yes, that's a little against my nature. <laughs> yes. If you tell me what to do, then I'm probably going to find a different way to do it. <laughs> so that, I think that was the joy of um, starting homeschool was really trying to find our niche, the way that that we can make it work for ourselves and our situation and my children specifically. And that was what was great was being able to pull from different philosophies, what I liked and then leaving the rest out that I didn't and just making sure it fit with our family. Of course, we've had to go through a lot of changes as the children get older and applying, you know, different um, mechanics that I didn't earlier on and different things like that, but that's fun too. It's just a new challenge every year. There's something different and a new challenge to kind of take on. It kind of becomes a need to know basis. Oh, we see, we need to know this. So we, we take time and learn it maybe. Um, now in your materials, one thing I liked about it, you, um, you emphasized all five of the senses. Um, how, how did that come about? Did you have a philosophy that you were following when you, when you did that? Yeah, I think it comes from two different, um, situations. One of them prior to homeschooling, we were dealing with some behavioral issues and, and my oldest is giving me permission multiple times to share this. So I feel comfortable doing that. But we were dealing with some behavioral issues in him that were not solved. I mean, we tried every type of parenting technique and mm -hmm. you know, nothing was really working. And so finally, we discovered that it was a sensory issue in him and some kind of neurological issue that we were able to um, help him through changing diet and also paying attention to the items that we had in our home, the clothing, the materials. And I learned that because he was much more sensitive on a sensory level, that um, natural materials were very important to have in the home. And so because they absorb sound and um, synthetic materials will, will actually heighten the sound so it makes things louder. So natural materials kind of absorb sound, they absorb energy. So rather than wearing polyester and synthetic materials, we started, you know, having the family wear more natural materials and have more natural materials in the home, more wooden toys. And this really helped him in combination with the diet. And I mean, a significant difference to where it was day and night. So um, between learning about his sensory issues and then also one of the philosophies that I kind of dove into was the philosophy of unschooling, which 
this is a Charlotte Mason podcast, so people are going to be dying right now hearing that. No, I don't have a problem with that. I've said many times that um, many unschoolers have have stumbled into really a Charlotte Mason philosophy just by unschooling and and vice versa. I, I think they they can work well together. I think unschooling can get derailed, but it doesn't have to. It's true. And my friend and I were talking about it. I feel like they are very parallel in a sense because if the unschooling mother is really kind of doing their job as an unschooling mother, not letting it derail, like you said, but really doing their job they're a student of their child and they're kind of laying out a feast for their child. It may not be all in a literature form, but their job is to present their children to all different types of experiences and, um, and materials. And that's kind of their job is to lay out a feast for their children. And they kind of observe what their children are interested in. And then they're a partner in kind of following that interest with them. So they're very paralleled to a degree as far as just throwing out a bunch of information or ideas and then watching how the child reacts to some of them. So yes, it can be a really amazing thing, but through that unschooling research, I really learned the science of learning. And one of those um, factors is that the more senses that are involved in it, in giving information to a child, the more likely they are to retain that information. Yes that's kind of where the senses come in is we try to have, you know, fresh herbs on the table. Again, nothing synthetic because of sensory issues, but fresh herbs or beeswax candles um, for the smell and for taste, we have tea or something to eat. And with touched, we have usually high quality art supplies that are made from beeswax or natural materials. And um, for sight, it's just important for me on a sensory end of things to have the home very organized and clean when we when we dive into our learning and um, so that it's just a place of order and peace before they're opening their minds and their hearts to the experience. You know, um, when I was doing some research a few years ago on narration, it what it turned out to be why I found out that um, Charlotte Mason style narration was working so well with students is this very reason um, our five senses are located in our brain. And when children read a passage knowing that they are going to uh, uh, tell that passage back, they begin to use their senses and, and actually create the sensory experience while reading that causes them to remember. Even if they don't actually smell what's going on in the book physically, they begin to create the sensory experience in their mind. And it is almost as if they have that sensory uh, experience going on, and that is why they're able to tell back. Um, and that is why um, narration is such a powerful tool in homeschooling. So I didn't know you were going to say that, but um, <laughs> it, it went along with this um, this whole idea of why narration works so well. Absolutely. And if you think as an adult, if you think about some of your memories, um, you know, especially the fond ones, but even maybe not the fond ones, there's usually more than one sense involved in that memory. You know, if you have a memory of salsa and you threw up or something. <laughs> yes. <laughs> involved in that. Or if you smell jasmine and you remember running after a fresh rain through, you know, a grove or something. So there's just interesting, it, I think it applies to adults as well. And it makes sense that senses are important and they do take a part in, in learning in the process of that. 
Yeah. Well, now I got, I, my claim to fame, I guess, on the internet or in homeschooling circles was um, morning, what I called morning time. But you um, have a lot of similar things because you do what's called a morning collective with your family. What does that look like? I mean, morning collective is really morning time for us, but my children like to be grateful. <laughs> and I guess I do too. So we came up with a name for our own time. And um, it is basically, I don't know exactly what your morning time looks like or had looked like, but we do Bible and prayer and we do memory work, which is usually a Bible verse or passage, a poem or a hymn and some Spanish and then we read a selection from different um, genres of books. So usually a fiction and a fantasy. And then we also work through an emphasis. So every day of the week has a different emphasis, such as fairy tales or fables, history, nature, poetry, um, a book of martyrs. So we'll kind of hit one of those each day of the week. Okay, that's fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it kind of um, rotates them. And I got that idea from a friend, she uses bookmarks that kind of help organize them before I was just randomly picking them. But mm -hmm. now we have them, you know, assigned as daily Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So that's kind of fun for us. And then we do a block study at the end, which is kind of what we're studying at that time in more depth. And that's what we'll read. We'll narrate a notebook about mostly. Right. So you end your morning collective with a time and notebooking together with your family. Is that how it, it works? Kind of. Yeah. We, we end the morning collective and it's not first thing in the morning. We do our mechanics first and then we do our morning collective because then we kind of got rid of the yucky stuff. The nagging things. Yeah. Yes. And so we make sure that's done. So then we can all rest and relax and enjoy one another and just have really good conversation without that looming over us. And then we have lunch right after usually, and then we'll do the notebooking after lunch. Okay. So, well, that sounds like a really, really solid, beautiful day. <laughs> um, I like that. Um, what do you do for your mechanics? Do you, is it math or? Right now, yes, definitely math. Every morning we do math first thing when the kids wake up. So before breakfast, everyone is on the floor doing their math or at the table. And that's usually before I wake up. <laughs> Don't tell mm -hmm. anyone. Um, but no, so I, my, I always had my kids start math before I was around to wh wherever <laughs> I was. <too. laughs> exactly. It's something they can, it's really their only independent subject from me. So um, yeah, I take advantage of that, I guess. But so they'll be doing math in the morning um, and then we head out for a run, all of us together. And everyone does different levels of mileage on that, but everyone kind of goes out for a run right after math. And then they all make their own breakfast. And after breakfast, we start with spelling. And then we do very little grammar. I, I kind of don't want to teach grammar until most of them are in junior high. I just feel like it. they may not understand the purpose of it until then. Yeah, it, it's very fruitless and if you start grammar too early. I got to where in our morning time, I was just doing one sentence a day. Um, I was using some Michael Clay Thompson stuff, but first I started out just diagramming, but I found that if, it, and that took maybe two minutes or, or three at the most, and I found that the re repetition over a long, long period of time um, was much, and conversation even, the, just the conversation about the words um, 
helped retain some grammar, um, whereas it, it seemed like when they were doing grammar workbooks, it was it was just it was just in one year and out the, the next. Absolutely. And just what a waste of time. Um, you're the first person that has ever mentioned Michael Clay Thompson that I have heard of. I found his his um, stuff years ago when I felt like I had to do grammar. And I was drawn to it mostly because of the aesthetic. Um, it was beautiful. And I thought, well, it would be really fun to maybe make grammar beautiful. <laughs> but his books are still on the shelf. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I, my son is, um, I'm going to go downstairs and open the door. I locked the door for some reason. And my, I was trying to go to a quiet place, but what I did was lock my son out. <laughs> All right. So, um, so did you said you didn't use this stuff as much, but you, and you really liked it and bought it. And, um, I have, I do have big plans to use it. I really would like everyone developmentally to be at a stage where I feel like they and understand why we're diagramming sentences, not just as a mechanic, but why. So we're not quite there yet. Right now we're just doing very introductory, you know, periods at the end of the sentence and capitalization. Yes, yes, that's good habits. <laughs> yes, basic parts of speech. So, and I mean, my oldest in that group that we're doing that is in the fifth grade, but I feel like for him, this is a perfect age for him to start learning these things. Prior to that, he just had no interest. So yeah, yeah, I, they don't have the background to really um, make sense out of it. I don't think. I mean, it does. You know, it's a limited um, amount to learn in some ways. Although you can go on and on and on, but it just to do it over and over again every year without that much, um, you know, to show for it is really a lot of wasted time. It is, and the repetition of it, I feel like if you have to repeat it year after year, then that's a bad sign. So yes. <laughs> that's one thing with unschooling that I learned is, um, I read this statistic, there's this democratic school, I believe in Maryland or Maine, and um, they had discovered through, they've been around since the 60s, and they have discovered, because most children don't choose to do math, of course, until later on in the years, but they have discovered that an entire K through 12 math curriculum can be mastered in 12 weeks. Wow. And that is just because when the child is developmentally ready and excited to take on the subject, of course, you know, they're probably 14, 15 by that time, they're going to blast through all the basic mechanics, or they have probably already learned it just through life. And then some of the harder concepts, it's going to be a lot easier because they're older and more developmentally ready. And so once I started really understanding about the whole cognitive process of learning, it's kind of like, why are we drilling these repetitive, you know, repetition? Why are we making this a yearly thing when we can just wait until they fully understand and it probably will click right away? Yes, yes. I actually saw that in play um, last year with this, my student that I teach. He had a math teacher, but he wasn't doing um, something happened, I forget, but they asked me to teach him math. Well, I tested him and he wasn't testing where he should have been. So I went way back to the beginning. He was trying to teach him math. He was way behind. And we hired um, and I told his parents, I said, I'm just not doing a very good job. And I'm afraid he's never going to catch up. Well, we hired a really a woman whose um, kids 
she had homeschooled them and they had all scored perfectly on their ACTs in math. And we hired her. And while I was struggling to teach him third grade math, she had him up to algebra in uh, maybe a month. It was, it was just, he, he was getting bogged down in things and um, it seemed like he didn't know them, but, but she was able to see what he needed to know to really know math. Whereas I couldn't see, I wasn't very good at seeing that. So, um, (laughs) but that's true. And, and I feel like we do that a lot with our math curriculum is um, I cut out a lot of things that they already had learned. You know, if you actually pay attention to your children's math curriculum, some of this stuff is repetitive and again, a waste of time. So here you ask them to fill out their four pages or something, and they're filling out four pages on time, for example. Mm -hmm. That's something you taught them as a four-year-old when, you know, they were curious about the clock or something. And so I realized so much of math is filled with some of that stuff or money, things that you can do hands-on in a grocery store that they would learn much quicker than sitting at paper with, you know, the illustrated penny. Yeah, it's abstract concept instead of all of a sudden it actually has meaning. Exactly. So there's a lot of math that we can kind of cut out and really get to the heart of it. And I believe that gives them kind of a step up in the math world to really know what they need to know and, and get rid of the things that they don't. Yeah, there's been a lot of research about it. And I know when homeschooling was first popular, there was a lot of talk about delayed mathematics. But we don't, you don't hear that as much as you used to. But I think among math teachers, um, like you're saying, the research does say that um, delaying um, early mathematics is actually more helpful. I believe, I mean, I think delaying a lot of things is more helpful. Yes. But that doesn't mean not having discipline in other areas. And I think that's where unschooling gets a really bad reputation is because it seems like it's a lack of discipline, but there could be many things that we can show discipline in our home without having to make them all academic. Right. Now you guys, it looks like you do a lot of handwork. Is that, is that correct? Yes, we do. So how do you get ideas for that? I always struggled. My kids, my kids re- did handwork, but it was more like things they came up with on their own. Uh, where do you get uh, good ideas for handwork? Well, I love when they come up with things on their own, but they're usually not as pretty. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no. You the internet when you were homeschooling in your earlier days. Yeah, we did not have the internet, no. <laughs> so that makes a big difference. And so... We, most of our handwork is Waldorf-inspired, and again, that's another philosophy that I took what I wanted from it and left the rest, but their handwork, they work with a lot of natural materials, and they also believe on, um, everything is rhythmic, so it's very seasonal, and all of their handwork has purpose. It's not just, hey, let's felt something. There's right. a season and a rhythm behind that and an understanding behind that, and so I love how they kind of take on handwork as a whole um, and relate it to seasons. And so we've kind of adopted a little bit of that in our home. And most of the information, I do have some Waldorf books, but um, most of it has just been online research, basically. Yeah, my friend Jeanette is very good at handwork and thinking of ideas. We do have a little, um, our nativity scene, the stable is still the one my oldest son made when he was real little. He just uh, got some hammer and nails one day and he hammered together this little stable 
and it became our our nativity stable. So um, that is so neat, and that's a great idea. I'm going to steal that from you. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So um, so you talked about the seasonal rhythms, and I and you also your day has a rhythm, which I love. And, and you also follow kind of the rhythms of the seasons. How does that work in your home? Our seasonal rhythms have naturally taken shape based off of seasonal activities, I guess. And we typically have some sort of traditional handcraft or activity that start the season. So, for example, for fall, we usually dip candles and beeswax in anticipation for the first rain. And when we have our first rain, which in California, you know, we have an actual first rain. It's not all throughout the year. It's typically in October, and that's when we begin daily tea and candle lighting um, for our notebooking time. And then we stop this ritual when we see the first buds in spring on the trees. So that's kind of a fun rhythm that we have um, for fall. We also hike once a week during fall, and then we take the month of November to revisit early American history and um, Native American history. And so that's kind of an annual rhythm that we have. Um, with winter, we start with making window stars. And that's another Waldorf craft. It, it's basically origami with kite paper. And, okay. Um, we ski once a week as a family. And that's when our read aloud time in the evenings really pick up as a family. Because, you know, it gets dark so early. And it's just a cozy time to be by the fire. So we have a lot of family read aloud time in the winter and uh do you want me to go season by season oh go ahead sure sure um we celebrate spring with a bonfire so we say goodbye to old man winter through the bonfire and then on spring the children actually get to choose what we do our block study on and so we kind of have a collective meeting and discuss um what to study as a block so that's kind of a fun tradition there and then for summer, to the start of summer, we always do a trip to Yosemite and we go bike riding. And that's kind of our way to get there right before the tourists arrive. Um, and then we do family swim team in May in all summer. So we kind of have each season is there's an activity, a physical activity, as well as some sort of handcraft that kind of kicks it off. Wow, that sounds really beautiful. So um, what are, when you say your block study, can you give us an example of one of your block studies? Yes, I have a few for sale in my shop right now. A, a biome block study was the first one that I released um, to sell. We It started by organically kind of diving into ecology and ornithology. We read this beautiful book and unfortunately it's not in print any longer, but it was on the life of John James Audubon and it captured his spirit just so well and all of everything that he had gone through that that led us to just really dive into ornithology. And then that kind of evolved into ecology. So we did this huge block basically um, on learning about ecologists and ornithologists and naturalists basically. And that kind of started a passion for all of us. We had been used to kind of more of a Charlotte Mason and um, feast type of 
gathering where you read multiple different types of literature. But this, we actually dove into and learned some facts and information and memorized some things. And it was every day that we were learning some of this content. And I just saw my children light up and share all of the facts and information because of that repetition that was happening. I feel like they were maybe retaining more because we weren't moving on to something else. And so we try to incorporate a block at least twice a year where we're learning about the same subject every day and we're diving into it through multiple senses. So um, through experiments, through look, watching videos online about it, reading about it, writing about it, and discussing it, of course. And so that's kind of what our blocks look like. And in preparing those, I realized I could be selling them as well so that other people can benefit from this kind of multi-sensory learning experience. And you sell those on your store. You have at your, at jodymockabee.com, you have a shop and you can look over some of the, some of the blocks, some of the materials that you put together from what you do and you sell those and they're not expensive. They're nicely, um, nice bundles that are very affordable for families. Oh, thanks. I try to, and I just, it's fun. We actually go through them as I write them so that I can make sure that it is true to what we would do about yes. <laughs> the kinks and everything like that. And so that's, what's kind of fun is I get to share, you know, with my following what we're doing as we're making it. And it kind of creates a fun anticipation too. Yeah. I used to, we used to laugh at all the homeschool, all everything that when the internet first came out, everything were things that moms thought they were going to do and instead of what they actually really did do. <laughs> and um, it's, it wasn't really quite uh, in tune with what ha actually happened in the home uh, or they would, you know, that you would hear a review of a curriculum, which two weeks later the family would quit, but you would be at home feeling like, Oh, I can't make this work in my family. <laughs> Never realizing that you were not the only one that um, sometimes, other families also did, couldn't get through it. Exactly. Now, I noticed something about you. You really try hard to um, check the use of devices in your home. Do you? How do you do that? Well, we don't have them. I mean, Jason and I have iPhones, but we have both kind of committed to just not allowing the children to have any devices. And that our, our children are getting older. And I believe, I mean, the average age for a child for a cell phone now is sixth grade, or mm. fifth grade which just breaks my heart. Um, mm. There's not that much research out yet to see how it's affecting our children. We're starting to get a little bit more research on how it affects the brain, but not necessarily the child. And um, we're very protective about what our children are exposed to. And the internet is just so big and, um, there's just no doubt that they're going to be exposed to all kinds of different things. And so we're very upfront with them about that. We talk about pornography. We talk about a lot of, um, things that they could be exposed to if they were at a friend's house, or even if they're here and they're researching something. Um, but as far as having personal devices, I just don't think we both do not believe that our children are mature or equipped enough to be able to handle that type of responsibility. I mean, I don't even think we are mature or equipped enough. Right. You know? So it's just so much. It takes a lot of discipline to keep that in check. So if you expect a child to do that, they're just not capable. 
No, no. And I even find as much as I um, am anti so many things, I often find myself, you know, getting in those bad habits of checking this, checking this, checking this and having to stop myself and say, no, I need to take a break and not, I'm not going to get on there this week, or I'm not going to get on today. I'm going to put that aside and not, and just, just make a little rule for myself. (laughs) I've had to have all kinds of silly little rules, you know, like between this hour and this hour and no checking your email first thing in the morning and all these different little rules in order to try to keep some sort of balance there, but also with the reality of knowing that it is a tool for your business and for staying in contact with people. Yeah. And it's interesting when you do step away that you, you, your brain does kind of clear a little bit and you get out of that fog. So it's just good to, to have a, a rhythm there too, and not, not just uh, go full speed ahead into the diving into the internet. <laughs> well, Jody, I have really, really enjoyed talking to you. I was, I, um, I always like to ask one more question at the end of the podcast. Um, what are you reading right now? Do you have any books that you especially are enjoying at this moment in time? Yes, I picked up War and Peace a couple of weeks ago, and I'm really enjoying that. I read Anna Karenina last year, and I was so moved by it in like a negative way, but then a good way too. <laughs> right, right. So, um, I, yeah, I'm reading War and Peace right now, and it's a great bedtime novel because um, I'm in the war p- portion of it, and so it makes me sleepy. <laughs> I did that. That is exactly how I read War and Peace, and it took me two years. Uh, oh, but I, would, wow. I would just read it before I went to bed, and, but I had such good memories of it because of that. I always say it stuck with me because it took me so long to get through it, but... Um, yeah, I... I do. Pre- I read Anna Karenina really quickly because I was so wrapped up in it. Um, and this mm-hmm. one's definitely moving a lot slower. Yeah, it does bog down in those wars, but it's still kind of interesting, even even when it you know is talking about all the cold and the battles and the snow and the terrible. <laughs> yeah, it's good, and his writing is just so fantastic. I really appreciate him. I've come to love his sense of humor. And I never thought I would say that about a book written back then, but <laughs> by a Russian, no less. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But oh, I love him. I, I'm really excited to read whatever he has next that will be on the list. But and then I'm listening to um, a little history of economics. Oh, I, okay. That was one of those daily audible, audible deals that I just kind of snatched up, and I'm enjoying that. I'm trying to understand philosophy a little bit more, and he captures a lot of the early philosophers and how they. Who, who wrote that book? I, I, His name I remember. is Neil Kishtani. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I didn't. I think I saw that, and I did not buy it that day. But um, um, that sounds like a really good book. Though. It's good. I like the the philosophical perspective. He takes it way back, you know, to Plato and Aristotle, and so that's been um, a nice bit of history. And then I'm also reading on reading well, which I learned mm-hmm. about through your podcast. And that is just beautiful. And that has tied in with Tolstoy and um, you know, the history of economics with the whole philosopher 
the whole philosophy behind economics. So it's kind of tied both of those books together. And I love when that happens. <laughs> so, oh yeah. That, so it's all, it's just perfect, perfect storm of good reading. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So we're at a good place right now with the books that I'm reading. <laughs> do, when do you read? Do you have, when do you take time to read? Do you have a, like you read before bed, do you just kind of keep a book around? I do. I read before bed. I also read in the afternoons the Children are usually done with their school around two. Um, so I take about two hours to myself during that time while they're just playing and, and doing whatever they do. And I try to do a little bit of reading then right before bed. And then I listen to books when I run. Mm, okay. So I take a lot of time then as well to, to read. Well, I guess to listen. Yeah, I did that too. A lot of people, I, I haven't been running lately, but when I did run, I like to listen to books, but a lot of people li- like to listen to music when they run, but I couldn't, it seemed like a waste of time. To me, Absolutely. So. I mean, it's so, you know, you're out there, you've got 40 minutes and what else are you going to be doing? So <laughs> you, I love it. I've, I've listened to some amazing books just because the narrators are so great, you know, so it's made some books come alive. Yes. Yeah. Really. Some you remember. Sometimes I can't even remember if I listened to it or I read it in print. Um, it just my mind um, just, you know, grabs onto it so much. Um, well, that was a very yeah, your life sounds really beautiful. And I know there's a lot of reality there that we haven't talked about. And I know there's messy things and hard, and hard things, even, you know, even when our children suffer or experience things that put us on these quests to find, um, find answers, but I really enjoyed hearing about your, your homeschool and your life that you created for your family. Thanks, Cindy. It was a pleasure speaking with you. And I just really enjoyed meeting you at Wild and Free and, um, reading your book, Mere Motherhood. I told you this in person, but it just resonated so much with me and a lot of my friends. So I really appreciate you and your presence as well. Well, thank you very much. I do. It means a lot to me when people say that to me. I'm always surprised and happy. So (laughs) it's awesome. (laughs) Well, thank you, Jody. Thanks, Cindy.